0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambudasa. Namo
1: tasa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one.
2: Sadanto
1: The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus-come-one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, uh, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. Saturday, uh, March 13th, we're in Berkeley, California we're lecturing on the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Ten Grounds chapter. And please join me in invoking the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Avatamska simply. And that's on the front cover of your sutra text right here. We'll just chant that name uh, seven times and put our hearts together.
0: namo <coughs> <coughs>
1: Please turn to page 88 and 89 in your text. We're going along in a traditional way, uh, explaining every line in the text. and uh, Then, first of all, we uh, go through and Find out what it says, and then we try our best to find out what it means and because uh, this text is is relatively new it 's only been translated as far as I know twice in into English, so we honor the fact that it 's only recently been in Chinese by first reciting the Chinese and presenting that to you so we can uh, put our put our hearts together and, and uh, Come up with the best English translation, and one of the first things we do is acknowledge that uh, this is a draft, and our our understanding of the, even the language is still very raw, very rudimentary. So it's a work in progress for sure. So we're on the third. We did last week. We did the third paragraph, and we're going to repeat it again because we only finished explaining half of it. So we'll we'll do three stanzas tonight. Let's start with the first one. Uh, in the Chinese, you should look at line, uh, if you take the, the Chinese and English together, we go one, two, that's the first stanza, three, four, and we're starting on line five tonight. So the first line of the third stanza. Oh, I'm sorry, my mistake. Wrong, wrong, wrong. We're on the one above that. Second, second stanza, so it should be the third complete line of Chinese. All right shi Ru chu
2: li
1: chao over to the
2: right
1: as they, the
2: ground,
1: as they enter the first ground, they immediately transcend the fivefold fears.
2: In
1: no livelihood, death, a bad reputation. No livelihood, death, a bad reputation. The evil destinies and the assemblies, awesome virtue. The evil destinies and the assemblies, awesome virtue. Okay, let's go over look at the Chinese and do a chant with this. Shri da ru chu di.
0: Buddha is me Buddha is me earth is my witness earth is my witness as they enter the first
1: ground as they enter the first ground they immediately transcend the fivefold fears they
0: immediately transcend the fire for fear. No livelihood, death, a bad reputation. No livelihood,
1: death, a bad reputation. The evil destinies and the assemblies, awesome virtue. The evil destinies and the assemblies, awesome virtue. Okay. Um, the, the the bodhisattvas we're looking at are called first-ground bodhisattvas, first-stage bodhisattvas. And a bodhisattva is an awakened being, an enlightened person, somebody who's awake. Basically what that means is they're awake to the, the reality that the, the self that we depend on every day is just a construction. It's just something that we, we make. It's nothing real. And they wake up to that. And that has a profound effect on everything that they do and see and think. And, and uh, all of their... Uh, behavior after that is, is reoriented away from me and mine at the center so it goes f- from me and mine to us and ours and that us is, is not just a, a blood kin uh, or group or team or nation state it's a it's a bigger us it's a, an us that includes everyone all creatures all sentient creatures so that's what they're awake to. That's what a bodhisattva is awake to, essentially, among other things, certainly. And these are the, the what are called first stage bodhisattvas. So they're uh, up there. They're, uh, this is of the 53 bodhisattvas positions. These are among the last 10. And this is the first stage of the last 10 stages, last 12 stages if you count the last two. So um, here we are and we're finding out what those bodhisattvas are like. What, what does it mean to be a first stage bodhisattva, a first ground bodhisattva? And the, one of the things we learned uh, when we were going through the, the prose section is that when you get to the first ground, you lose all fear. Fears go away. Of course, that's really interesting because... Fear is a primary motivator for almost everything that, that manifests uh, in, our, in our life. I was, for example, um, involved in freeway traffic today, driving back from the South, and, my goodness, uh, having been meditating for a while um, this last week, then suddenly jumping into freeway traffic after having been away from it for a while... It's easy to forget how much we have learned to just put up with the tension of driving at high speed on a narrow concrete strip separated from other whizzing thousand-pound vehicles going in the opposite direction, separated only by a paint strike. And knowing that people who are in those vehicles are as uh, unconscious as I am often it's terrifying it's just really scary to get out there and, and contend with all those whizzing vehicles and the fact that so many of us arrive at our destinations is truly a miracle of some sort of grace and engineering and the fact that we don't just smash each other to bits regularly you know is, is amazing I saw the statistic by the way not to get too far away from the topic but I saw the statistic that Traffic fatalities are way, way down this year from even five years ago. Only 33,000 of us died last year in traffic. Uh, And that's pretty good, I guess. So we learned to put up with that that kind of reality. Um, So it was, Sarah was suddenly just having to cope with whizzing along the freeway. And you forget that this is not natural. To, that the natural state, I suppose, would be to walk or maybe at the fastest to run. And how long can you do that? How long can you keep up the running, moving, moving your body that fast through space? But we go faster now. And my body registered fear. It was scary to be going that fast with other people coming in the opposite direction just that fast and zooming by nearly died twice from people who were cutting across into my lane or uh, suddenly appearing passing on the right hand side and and, okay that's called traffic that's called driving so that's a we just think yeah of course that's what we do every day Um, what other terrifying things do we put up with Mm, a lot of people are afraid of getting in an airplane still some people are afraid of heights some people are still afraid of the dark uh, adults, and they—that's not cool to admit—but we, we just put up with it. So, um, those are the you know immediate fears that we meet every any given day. But the Buddha in this text right here gave us five, and he said these are primary scary things. Of all the things that that could scare us, um, these are five. That are the scariest, and he listed them, and they're right there in tonight's text. When they begin to enter the um, the first ground, when they or, and that ru enter, literally enter, same master. When they begin to master the first ground, right there. Thereupon, in order to do that, they have gone beyond the fivefold fears. And what are those fivefold fears? They are de in, in two lines we get all five. First, the fear of not living. Second, the fear of death. Third, the fear of a bad reputation, and you could call that loss of face. Four, evil destinies. Five, the the assembly's awesome virtue. So let's unpack those. We started last week and how fascinating. I got emails from all around the world, literally. People who heard that description of last week and had some, some of whom had heard it back hmm, was it almost a year ago when we first started lecturing this and remembered that they had been thinking about what scared them and by bringing it up again during when we have the repeating verses because we're in the repetitive verse section of our text they uh, it touched a button and so people emailed me and said yeah 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 me too me too boy who would have thought and interestingly enough of all the fears what I described today about traffic was fear of death right (laughs) fear of death by onrushing motor vehicle Um, or my falling asleep and causing that same problem for others that kind of thing the thing that people wrote and said was the scariest was stage fright stage fright no joke Truly, it is so. So, let's look. Where does stage fright fit in? What are the five? Number one, no livelihood. We talked about that last week. Is being really basic. Not being able to make a living. Not being able to support yourself. Not being able to support your family. Not being able to support your loved ones. Starving. Dying of cold. Dying of exposure. What does it come down to? Survival. The primary fear is survival. That first one, the Buddha says, yeah, that's a real motivator. People who wouldn't consider the possibility of stealing anything until it comes to your dependence being hungry. And if you can't handle that, you will do something that you never would have considered. Um, that's primary motivator. We know about uh, the taboos, the basic taboos of of the human tribe. Certainly one of those is cannibalism, and yet there are very rational, very sane, very normal people who under extreme conditions would feed on other human flesh. In the century... Uh, that has, in the 20th century, we have numerous accounts of that happening to people. Um, Here in California, we remember the Donner Party, who were infamous for having tried to get over the Sierras in the winter, bad advice, and wound up uh, eating members of their kin. Why? First fear, survival. Others would say, oh, no, no way, under no circumstances would I do that. And yet, when the time comes, who knows? It was people who did that. So, Buddha says, major fear. Major fear is the fear of not being able to stay alive. The second, death, is number two, according to, not second only to the fear of livelihood, is the fear of losing your human life, dying. Obviously, we will fight to stay alive. Um, We will fight to, to keep breath in our body, for example. Um, if we're immersed in water. That's why, how did we hear about that recently? That was um, brought front and center several years ago when, remember the scandal at Abu Ghraib, the prison in Baghdad that uh, became worldwide news when it turned out that the U.S. military was using waterboarding as... Uh, method to extract information, which um, violated the Geneva Convention. Of course, I won't go into it tonight because there are political ramifications and all. But um, what the, the, the question that came up was: Is that particular method torture? And apparently, something called waterboarding simulates drowning, although the only water is being. There's, you're not in water. You're in dry land in the air, but water is being put into your your breath apparatus, your nose, your mouth, your lungs, and it feels like drowning, and you th- your, your mind thinks you're drowning. And it's so scary that the theory is, which counters the CIA, counters the U.S. military, counters international treaties, uh, the theory is that you will... Do anything to avoid dying, even telling things that ordinarily you would you would not tell. So that's the, the purpose of, of the so-called method of, of extracting information, which is called torture. So it's waterboarding. So people will do anything other than die to, rather than die. The third one is a bad reputation, and that's fascinating because um, in the West, We don't, let's say, let's careful here. There are Western cultures where, let's say again, there are Western cultures where face, name, is a huge motivator. Certainly we think face is associated with Asia, for example. Clan is important. But let's take a look. Uh, The story of Romeo and Juliet, right? Shakespeare's play has to do with face. An insult to the Montagues or the Capulets will put people at war. The two clans in the city of Verona go to war because of an insult to reputation. So face is really a huge motivator to behavior. Okay. Now, number four is the evil destinies. And that's a little harder to... Um, to, to connect to and say, yeah, that's something that ever scared me. Mm, how many of us changed our behavior thinking that we might fall into the hells? Mm, maybe parents use that to threaten kids. Don't do that or you'll fall into the hells. Certainly, I know there are, uh, there are times and groups that, that overuse that as a motivator. Uh, I was told this last weekend... Um, that there are moms who said, kids told me, reported to me, that their mom would say to them, you know, if you don't eat up all your rice and vegetables, you'll fall into the hells. Did you ever hear that one? Did your mom ever pull that one on you? You children of Buddhists. Yes, people are nodding their heads, right? Can you imagine? Like, that's a good way to propagate the Dharma, isn't it? You know, make the Buddha ready to send you to hell for not eating your food. You know, it's like, Man, the Buddha must be mean. You know, it's like, that's, that's such a, a non-starter. Yeah. I just really wish moms would not use the Dharma to threaten people. You know, kids, you'll drive them away for sure. Won't go into that tonight, but I've done that before. The, the Dharma of fear should be removed as a way. And then, then the moms, after threatening their kids with the Buddhist hells for misbehavior, come to me and say, I want my child... To draw near the Dharma, I want him to be good. You know, yeah, well, if you want him to be good, don't make the Buddha someone who sends your kids to hell. You know, it's like, that's not the way to make them draw near the Dharma. Anyway, enough of that. But evil destinies as a motivator, evil destinies as a way to change behavior.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Um, the Buddha is saying here, for people who really uh, have their eyes open, The hells, the realms of ghosts, and the realms of animals are real. They're real places. And the the beings who go to the realms of the hells, the ghosts and the animals, are people who lose their human bodies. Their behavior has to be so negative, so destructive, and so harmful to others that you yourself lose your human body as a result. Hmm. Okay. Now, why I say that's, that doesn't connect with us as much is because there is an entire worldview implied here. Right? The hells are something that I heard about growing up as a Methodist. Um, the hells were considered somewhat quaint. Um, something that you might hear about in a white Clapboard church in Alabama or Protestant Vermont, right? That you get that my mom, growing up as a Southern belle in Kansas City, was told about the hells and that they were stoked hot and they were waiting for sinners and if you were evil, you could fall into the hells and they'll be hot and they'll burn and the hells will burn you. Right? That's how she heard it. And and you kind of laughed at it, you know, because it was that was a style. It was a preaching style. And uh, as uh, Master Hua said, uh, Right? If the if the monks don't have a special style, nobody's going to bow to the bodhisattvas. So if if the, the the monks have to to you know be a little bit scary in order to shame that mentality of Buddhist into into behaving. That's the, the the idea of the preachers. The preacher has to, you know, get into his get into his style to get us to to really believe. Anyway, that's a an older form. Here we are, 21st century, the hells are a hard sell. Okay? Uh, the realm of ghosts, we see ghosts, interestingly enough, there's a cultural hook here, in that we see ghosts in growing up, I saw ghosts growing up as um, cute, fuzzy cartoon characters. Remember Casper? Casper, the friendly ghost, the friendliest ghost you know. Grown-ups might run from him in fright. The children all love him so, right? So grown-ups run from Casper, but the kids love him. So how do you make that scary? Right? Here's Casper, who's a lovable ghost. Right? So in Chinese, in the Chinese culture, ghosts are pretty scary, and everybody, you know. If you see a, you see a ghost, you will definitely run from it. The, so the realm of ghosts is a little bit of a hard sell. The realm of animals, less so. Um, if you take Highway 5 north from L.A., you go past Kalinga, C-O-A-L-I-N-G-A, Kowalinga, right? Pronounced Kalinga. It's down in Southern California. And you see the stockyards. You see the feedlots. And it goes on for a very long time as you're going by it, 65, 70 miles an hour. Where you meet Kalinga is through your nose because you smell it before you see it. Kalinga has this horrible smell of all the cows, tens of thousands of cows out there under the sun, on the dirt, being fed things they never should be fed, so that they get fat fast. They're quick, They, they get add weight chemicals and antibiotics and bovine growth hormone. And all that stuff goes through the cow and it comes out and it smells Right? and they don't have anything to do with it except just put it in holding ponds and ship it or bury it. So Kalinga smells. So pretty quick, pretty quickly you can look at the the stockyards, the feedlots at Kalinga and say animals have it hard. Nasty, brutish, short. Those are the lifespans of animals. So you think, I don't want to fall into the realm of animals. I don't want to lose my human body and become an animal, a ghost, or a hell being. That's the Buddha's point. For people who make that connection that beings in the hells, ghosts, and animals realm are souls in a different body, then you go, oh, well, how do you go there? Maybe I don't want to do that. That's the idea. So you give fear of that. That's a a motivator of behavior. Okay, last one. Here we go. So the last one is called Assembly's awesome virtue, Zhong Wei De. What's that? Stage fright. Stage fright. The fifth fear that the Buddha said is enough of a fear to motivate people to change their behavior is called Da Zhong Wei De. Fear of the Great Assembly's virtue. What that means is, and this is so interesting because universally this is, this is true. You can be a very courageous hero. You can be a great athlete charging down the field. You can be a military hero. You can be uh, a uh, someone who's just completely not afraid of anything. But turn around on the stage, look out, see the faces all looking towards you, hear the silence before you open your mouth, and people will wet their pants. People will—they'll feel those. Butterflies. They will feel palpitations. It's really true. And how, has anybody ever had that experience? Raise your hand. Like you had it. Okay. Well, you'd be amazed. More than half of the folks here raised their hands. For those who're listening online, uh, certainly I did. Certainly I know what that's all about. And how funny, right? Why? Why is that? it just turn around or return to your seat, and your heart's going. But after a while, you're not afraid because. That person's at the lectern, at the podium. They're speaking. You stand up, turn around and face them, and suddenly it's there. That that stage fright, the Buddha said, major motivator. That will influence behavior. It's called stage fright. So, how interesting. Um, in high school, I'm sure your high school had clubs, right? clubs. My high school in Toledo had gavel club, G-A-V-E-L, a gavel, like a, right? A gavel is the the meeting will now come to order, a gavel, right? So gavel club was what? Public speaking club. Somehow I found myself in public speaking club. You had to join a club, and, and I wasn't going to join one of the social clubs. I wanted to join something where I could, I wasn't a chess player, so I joined the gavel club. And the Gavel Club was a division of what's called Toastmasters International. Anybody know about Toastmasters? Toastmasters is an international organization that's devoted to public speaking. So Gavel Club was the high school equivalent. And unbeknownst to me, I was joining the club and learning how to be a public speaker. And at first it was really terrifying. And then it got to be kind of fun. Because they did it in an intelligent way to to get you past stage fright and to actually make speech-making conscious. So you had choices. Instead of it being something you just got through, you know, or read your notes and buried your head, you actually could make a couple choices. You could could do it this way or that way. And one of the first things they did was, that I remember, was the "ah" ah-jar. There was a jar with a a lid with a slit on it, and it was the "ah" ah-jar, and there was an ah master. What's that about? You, when you public speak, when you speak in public, when you make a speech, you're never aware of how many times you say, uh, um, well, um, yeah, uh, mm, mm, mm nope. All the different ways of filling space. So there's a sound but you're not ready to make a sentence in chinese you go zige 这个, uh professor professor chen my first chinese professor had this was incredible habit he would stand at the blackboard and go which is ah in Chinese. So every time in Gavel Club you said ah, ding, hit the bell. Terrifying because you'd say three words and have four ahs. And then every time, nickel into the ah jar. And that ah jar was full of nickel because you'd start to pay. It's a motivator to change your ah habit, you know, say it less. If you go ding, you just wind up holding your breath for fear you're going to say an ah until you can make it conscious then you hear somebody give a talk without ahs and ums. errs wells pretty amazing how unexamined you will make a sound in order to fill the space so the ah master was there just waiting yeah. ding so happy to catch you in an ah so stage fright stage fright major fear. And it will turn you white. It will make your knees knock. All those clichés, knee knocking, make your knees knock, make your teeth chatter. Absolutely. Your body goes, through. just for fear of being laughed at. What is stage fright? Think about it. They're going to laugh at me? The, the Buddhist description is 大中, the assemblies, wei de, wei awesome virtue fear it's that those folks know more than I do will say it better than I do are more intelligent than I am will see that I'm fill in the blank inferior, unintelligent uncultured unqualified wrong etc so that's a fear that's a major fear Okay, those are the five. No livelihood, death, evil reputation, evil de- bad reputation, bad name, face loss, evil destinies, stage fright. Those are the five. Could I ask you all, please, to turn to page 48. 48, 49. Now, if your book and my book are the same, you're going to find the first time we ran into these five, Plus the antidote. Aha! So neat. Okay, at the very top, it says, It's so because once bodhisattvas attain the ground of happiness, they leave behind all fears. Fears such as not staying alive, fear of a bad reputation, fear of death, fear of the evil destinies, fear of the virtue of the great assembly. They abandon all such fears forever and why it's because these bodhisattvas are free from the thought of self they don't even cherish their own bodies how much the less wealth and possessions therefore they have no fear of not staying alive here's the fear and here's the antidote this is the the courage that gets rid of fear of not staying alive meaning survival. Fear of no livelihood. What is it? In a word, ego, self. The thing that creates the fear is this strong, strong view of me and mine. And you think, well, yeah, that's what's on the line, isn't it? That's what I could lose. I could lose myself. Everything that I hold dear, everything that I think is really real, is tied up in me and mine. Suppose you weren't afraid of losing that. Hard to think of. Hard to imagine what it would be like to live selflessly, to truly live, Without the big burden of me and mine, it's really hard because it's for most of us, including the self created by the marketplace, is utterly dependent upon me being a separate, individual, autonomous, unique unit. I am. A special person. Okay. Um, Because the bodhisattvas are free from that thought, notice the word thought, of self, they have no fear of not staying alive. They don't even cherish their own bodies, wealth, or possessions. Not cherish. Okay. What is it? ai? Pusa li wo xiang gu ai Not love. The word here cherish is also the same word for love. All right. No thought of the self. This is key. Okay. What am I to to explain this? It's really important to get a flavor of, to to open this up for us to appreciate what's being said here is to look at those two two words. Li wo xiang. They are free from thoughts of wo, of me. Do we ever really get rid of the self, of the ego? Mm, To answer that question, I would ask another question. Where does that sense of me and mine come from? People who realize the Tao, people who wake up, all right, people who get enlightened, is the word, all report the same thing. is What's gone is that sense of me being separate, different, unique, autonomous, special, different. And what replaces it is a sense of identity, sameness, not different from everything, completely in every possible way connected to all that lives, even to the point that connected with all that has lived and all that will live. So past, present, and future, same. North, south, east, west, same. Not just with humans, but with all sentient things. People who wake up say, the difference is the thought of the self as being different is gone completely gone now why is that so hard well one really important reason why that's so hard is our theology if we come from a Judeo-Christian background says that we are part of God if you grew up as a Catholic You recited catechism. Who made me? God made me. And as a result, I'm a part of God. And I'm a very special part of God. I'm unique. I'm an individual. Here with my instructions, my purpose, God put that purpose in me. Now, that's a beautiful way to live. From the Buddhist point of view, it's a wrong idea in that you can't find the self. And here's an important thing to 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 say. For me to stand here sit here and try to convince you the self isn't real is is dangerous as as the speaker because people could say, Well show me your driver's license. Show me your passport right? Show me your social security card. That's your name. That's your face. If the police pulled you over today, they're going to find that speeding person with your name and face on that driver's license. 135 bucks to pay, you know, for a parking ticket, right? You tell me the self isn't real. Did you pay? I hope you did. You know, otherwise you're going to be arrested. You know, so it's like, tell me the self isn't real, right? So I can't really do that. I don't intend to try to convince you that the Notion of a self take it from me isn't real. What I can do sitting here is to ask you to go find yourself. If you do that you are doing what every meditator throughout history has done. When you ask the question who? Right? The, the question in Chan is who? Who is in there? Who is really in there? And the Buddha's method is to investigate that question. Go look. Check it out. And there's, there's all these different ways of doing it. One way is to look at the skandhas, the heaps, right? Look at the body. All right? Are you... Let's do it. Let's do a quick one. Just to say, here is the method by which I can make this proposal that this, the view, the thought of self is seen as an illusion. As a useful and a totally universal illusion, but an illusion all the same. Let's look at it. Are you in your bones? Uh, well, my bones are inside. I'm not in my teeth. Guess why? I've had teeth pulled and there are dentists here tonight who have pulled teeth and the self is still there. right? You've, how about people with false teeth? Is the false self there if the self is in the teeth? No, the self is not in the teeth. Okay, is the sel- every time, if the, if the self were in your bones, how about when you clip your fingernails? Here's your fingernail pairing, right? Is the self in there? No, it's ridiculous, okay? Because you can burn your paired fingernails and the self is still there, just as strong as ever. Okay, self is not in the earth element. How about self in the water element in your body? That's the first of the five skandhas, the body skanda, the rupa skanda, right? Let's look. Am I in the water element in my body? 80% of the body roughly is water. Is the self there? Well, spit or cry and you should be losing part of yourself. If you spit enough, maybe you spit the self out, right? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be neat? Sadly enough, you can't find the self in earth, air, fire, and water. Okay. So we've proven, if you do the exercise, that the self is not in the form skanda, the body skanda. Let's move to the next skanda. Feelings. Is the self in my sensation of cold? No, because when I'm hot, the self is still there. Is the self hiding in my sensation of joy? No, because when I'm sad, the self, self is still there. So, The Buddha's method, he says, check it out. Don't take it from me. Investigate for yourself to find where the self is. Go through forms, feelings, thoughts, autonomic processes, consciousness. Bit by bit by bit, you empty out, you discover, hey, I can't find the self in my personality. Well, where's the self? Is the self in my degrees? How about my high school diploma? I spent four years struggling for that thing. The self should be there. Is the self in my military service record? Is the self in my marriage document? Is it in my... Ch- where's the self? Bit by bit, you look into it. And if you are clear and rigorous and systematic, you're going to get to the conclusion that you can't find it. So where's the self? Important investigation to look into you keep going who who all right so those are in things that you can see hear think what about the things that come up when you meditate yeah. that's a really interesting place to look for the self and the Buddha said right just keep asking who is in there asking who hmm subtle hey okay, you start really getting down to the the quiet, subtle movements of the mind. Who's in there? Who's reciting the Buddha's name? Who is in there asking who? Is the who in the silence before you ask or after? Is it in the innuendo or in the inflection? Wow. So, the Buddha said, look into it. All of the people who have done that, and this is a, you know, anyone can. It doesn't matter the age, the culture, the language you use. Anybody can do this investigation. The people who have done so and then come back and talk about talked about what happened, all said by and large the same thing: is there is a time when the asking itself goes belly up, puts all four paws in air, and says, "I give up." And as you give up, the answer arrives. The bigger self is found in all things. But it's not an idea. It's a real letting go of the whole apparatus of consciousness. And the Buddha described it as turning over to wisdom. Okay, that's you can talk about it, point to it, but you actually have to do it before it's real. Here's another way to think about it, which I, I find really helpful. I one more comment: in that turning over, the fear goes away. That's that's the key to our topic, right? In the transformation of that moment where you say, "The who is not going to be found in myself." In that turning over, fear goes away. There's none of those fivefold fears, and all five fears come back to the basic fear of self. Okay, so here's another way to think about it: the conscious mind, and the Buddha is really specific about it. He says there's consciousness of the eye, and he in the Sharangama Sutra he describes what the eye sees: the eye sees colors, light. Dark movement penetration through and blocking of that penetration. That's what the eye sees. The eye consciousness distinguishes those things. It funbi. The Chinese really helps here. The Funbi the discriminating consciousness 分别是, has a picture of has a picture of a knife and an eight eight parts to distinguish, to cut in pieces. beer also has a knife. It's the idea of chop, 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 chop. It's like you do with carrots before you put them in the miso soup or in your top ramen, vegetarian ramen. Right? You chop all those carrots up on the chopping board with your caital, your cleaver. That's what consciousness does. It cuts big things into small things, makes smaller and smaller, smaller chunks. Wisdom puts those pieces back together integrates into a piece bigger than the boundaries of the self so when consciousness flips over as you try to look into who 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 who, and discover at one point after a long investigation that the who the problem is not trying to find it it's in looking. The problem is not the, the answer is not in finding the who, finally, this elusive who, but in letting go the search. Right at that moment, the fungia, the chop chop, chop, flips over and integrates into a bigger whole and the self is transformed. That's where fear goes away. That's the idea, as I understand what this is saying. Now I hope somebody else can make sense of this key, what is the key? It's because these bodhisattvas are free from the wǒ xiǎng, the thought of self. Furthermore, they don't love, we use the word cherish, but it's, it's literally love, ai zi shēn they don't love their own body or wealth and possessions. So, therefore, that thought of no livelihood. Survival is no longer the primary motivator. Okay. I think it's important to say that it's not that when the self goes away, you go playing on the freeway. Right? You become a daredevil and try to die in creative ways. It's not like that. Kind of like in, remember, uh, what's the movie? Um, Groundhog Day. Right? Groundhog Day... When, um, who's the actor? Bill. Bill? Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Bill Murray dies over and over and over again because he knows after a while he's going to wake up tomorrow, it's going to be the same, you know, he's going to hear the same song and it's the same day. So he starts, he becomes a daredevil. He decides. That, that's a very interesting Buddhist film, by the way. Buddhist influence film. So Bill Murray dies. You know, he puts himself in situations that we would not do. He dives off buildings and stands in front of on-rushing buses and stuff. And that's not what the Bodhisattva does. The Bodhisattva is not uh, suddenly irrational because he knows the self doesn't exist. It's that Bu'ai, he doesn't attach to this notion of my body being so utterly special and precious and my stuff is more important than my life. He doesn't have those ideas. Who I? Just that lack of attachment makes having a body a healthy normal functioning body and things a gift and something very wonderful. Letting go of the self That thought of self shows all of the conditions of our lives as a gift, as a gift of what you'd call affinities, conditions that have been put into motion who knows how long before, now coming ripe, allowing us to enjoy having a body, having relationships family, friends opportunities to benefit people and the things that come to us are joyful and a gift the fact that we have food to eat is a huge gift it's joyful once the self is gone all that stuff is seen as something special and precious not to be taken for granted not to be wasted, not to be misused. Certainly not a reason to harm. Okay, so that's the, that's the gift. And fear goes away. Okay, that's, that's my best guess at what that means. But the cue, the key, our, our key, our mm, clue, that's the word I was looking for. Our clue to how you can live fearlessly is in getting away from that view of the self. Okay, let's go on down and see if that's true. Test it. Test our theory. They don't seek offerings from others, but only to give to others. So, reputation goes away. Face. Face is not such a heavy motivator. Somebody disses you, somebody disrespects you or your mom, can you go, "Eh, my mom is not what you say she is. She would say, shame on you. Why are you spending so much time paying attention to me and my shortcomings? Shouldn't you reflect on your own shortcomings? I don't know how your mom would answer, but my mom would do that. She would turn it right around and say, "You should really, you know, wash your mouth out with soap." You know, you You can't say something nice. Don't say anything at all. And that's what my mom would say. And you know, she's not. Her reputation is not tarnished by somebody saying, "Yo, mama," you know, whatever. And it's like, I don't care. You know, that's your problem. Why? Thank you for paying attention to me, but you know, don't you want to like pay attention to yourself? You really clearly need to clean up. You know, So can you do that? Can you hear somebody diss your mother and just say, you don't want to take on my mother, man. I really would recommend that you think twice before saying to me to my mom because she's, she's fierce. You know, Can you do that? No. Most people insult your mother immediately. It's a fight. Immediately you will come to blows right away. Prime button to push. Insult somebody's mother. It's a fight right there you will go to save your mother's honor right that word honor that's right here honor is in that fear of a bad reputation don't insult my honor romeo and juliet think about it right they go to war the two clans in the town of verona because of an insult they just they come together at a dance and just slander each other that's a major cause in the hebrew scriptures just reputation, saying, defaming somebody's deity, called slander, slandering somebody's god. Oh, you will destroy the, all the towns in the valley for that, defacing somebody's deity. Okay, so how come they don't want other people to praise them, and when their only interest is in helping people? So if somebody takes away their good name. It's like, no, no, that's all right. What can I give you? You must be hurting or you wouldn't be insulting me. Let me give you something nice. That's how a bodhisattva does it. Completely turns around. Takes, disarms, you could say. Pulls the plug on an insult as a motivator to fear. Right? I'm not afraid of losing my face. I don't have a face to defend. My only intention is to benefit you. What can I give you? You must be hurting, otherwise you wouldn't be insulting people. Your afflictions must be pretty heavy. Can I give you a cookie? You know? like No, it's not my mom. Call me anything you want. It had nothing to do with me. It's your problem. Here, feel better. That's how Bodhisattva might behave, right? Interesting, huh? What a difference. What a total difference having no face to defend having no name can make they've left the view of self far behind have no thought of self therefore there's no fear of death okay this one gets very esoteric Um, same same principle with no self so who dies why is that esoteric I believe this is not so simple I believe it has to do with the notion that at death you simply return. And the the thing that transmigrates, what's called the eighth consciousness, goes on to pick up another set of skandhas, another set of personality, body, feelings, thoughts, activities, consciousness. You reincarnate quickly, you pick up another body, like changing clothes. So, death is only a change of clothes <coughs> that's as I say that 's not so simple because this is not something I verify with my own eyes, but that 's what the teachings say that death is like a change of clothes, like you could say changing a hotel room. you go into another room at death so Bodhisattvas because the self is gone, they see they see that they can see the process, and it's so interesting because. If you think about it, this is not an idea that's very far from us. Maybe there's somebody sitting here who remembers their past lives or can remember their last dying and, and changing. I certainly don't. But according to the Buddha and everybody who has awakened all this time, we all have done this close change countless, 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 countless times. I'm 60, going into my 61st 60 year. 61 years ago, I did it. I transmigrated. Right? I changed clothes. I came from my mother, but nine months before that, I was in another body. I don't remember. I don't remember. And there's something about that experience that wipes the memory however there is a state whereby you can actually trace it back and that's that's called <laughs> the ability to know past lives which is real it's part of the, what are called the six psychic powers but it's not something I have and I forget we all forget the Buddha say that we've died and been reborn many, 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 many times. The bodhisattva sees that and says, yeah, so fear? Anybody not die? Why be afraid? Who's not going to get old and die? Fear? Fear of not knowing? Yeah, you don't know, but that it's going to happen shouldn't be a motivator to fear because what a waste of energy. It's definitely going to happen. Interesting, I had a friend tell me just today about her daughter who's now uh, in grad school going on to be a veterinarian who said to her at age three, mom asked her, she said, what would you like most? And her daughter at age three said, a good death. Isn't that interesting? And the mom said she never ever forgot it because her da- she just, you know, playing with crayons. No, no, her daughter said, I would like a good death. Because I think she'd just seen a squirrel die or something like that, and she had connected from her three-year-old innocent heart that that's what she wanted most. It's like, wow, who is that in there, in that three-year-old body, you know? So the Bodhisattva is not afraid of dying because they see that the self... Is not a limiter how come we do how come death is such a huge fear it's because we are limited by me and mine there's this not knowing what's going to happen now again I'm assuming that the bodhisattva doesn't jump onto the freeway doesn't you know jump off bridges, doesn't drink poison. It's that when death comes, they see the change and it's not frightening. Okay, that's the difference between us and Bodhisattvas, right? Death is scary. Dylan Thomas, rage, rage against the dying of the light, says Dylan Thomas. Right? Scary. Scary. Be afraid. Don't go gently into that good night, says Dylan Thomas. So, they themselves know that after death, they will certainly not be apart from the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Therefore, they have no fear of the evil destinies. Here again is death being frightening, but the Bodhisattvas on this first stage, first ground, have been... Connecting to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas so often that it's real to them that death is like being reborn into the light of Amitabha, Medicine Buddha, Guanyin Bodhisattva, Great Strength Bodhisattva, Manjushri Bodhisattva, Samantabhadra Bodhisattva, Maitreya Bodhisattva. That this is something real for them. Just look ahead at. Amitabha here, the big lighted window. The, by the way, the, our standing wooden image is Shakyamuni, by the way. The big wooden gilded image that's standing on the altar is some people see it as Amitabha, but they say, but you know, Dharma Master, it's different hands. is always like this. How come your Buddha's like this? It's because this is a Gandhara Shakyamuni. It's an image of Shakyamuni that was done backwards to Amitabha in terms of hands. But it's Shakyamuni. The Buddha, stained glass Buddha is Amitabha and he's the Buddha of limitless light. Limitless light. Limitless light. So, the Bodhisattvas say, yeah, when I Leave this body, I want to go directly to the land of utmost happiness of Amitabha. Anybody who sat and listened to Master Da'an last Saturday speak the Dharma heard a little bit about that teaching. Okay, so the Bodhisattva says, So fear? No, I think the Pure Land's a much better place than the Saha land. You know, it's like less traffic, I don't have to go fill up and have my credit card rejected because the computer is down, you know. I don't have to see the red light on the dashboard in the Pure Land. So all of that fear is gone. I want to get there. Pure Land sounds like a nice place. Maybe better. I want to go. I will go. I want to be with Amitabha. So what's to be feared of the evil destinies? They're not going to fall because while they were alive... They didn't do things that would lead them to the land of the ghosts, the land of the animals, the lands of the hells. Clean conscience, so there's no fear. Okay, so flip that over. Somebody who does the things that would lead to the hells, the animals, and the ghosts could be afraid a lot. Um, One thing that leads to the lands, uh, to the hells, is striking the life out of other people's bodies or other creatures' bodies. So if you slaughter others for a living, if you kill a lot, then one of the consequences might be that you are aware you have this residual energy of having, you know, maybe ritually killed or Uh, in war time you're aware that you have killed and that consciousness makes you afraid because you see that change. Uh, It's mind you these are complex issues because suppose you kill in the line of duty as a soldier is that bad and wrong? No, certainly not. That's We're talking about cause and effect. There's mitigating circumstances whereby if you don't kill when you're in the service of your country, then you're making a mistake. You know. There's this is not complex. I'm talking about somebody as close as my own father, who was what's called a war hero for having killed a lot. And so complicated issue, not something black and white, not just point to it. Suppose you're a housewife or house husband, and it's your job to cook for your family. And suppose your husband was a, let's say you were alive in the Ming Dynasty, for example, and your husband was a di baoguan, he was a a judicial authority in Chang'an, and your job was to host uh, all of the regional governors. And so, how many chickens did you kill? How many pigs did you kill? A lot. Right? And you're going to say, no, dear, I'm not going to kill. We're going to feed your guests mantou instead. You know, right? We'll paint faces on them and they look like chickens. And then you, they'll be. No, no, no. You don't. You feed these honored guests the best food because your husband is hosting. What do you do? You're not going to kill? No, you kill. So, bad, wrong, complicated, right? There are all these different circumstances. The point is, if you kill, there's an awareness of that process of dying that affects your own consciousness. And fear can be the result. If you're able to, bit by bit by bit, move yourself away from the causes, conditions, methods, and karma of killing you will have a commensurate amount of fearlessness. No fear. That's the point. The Buddha is completely a living being. He's an awakened living being. The Buddha says, yeah, I know what it's like to be in a world where there are animals and so animals get eaten. It's not a good deal, is it? If in the middle of this world we can bit by bit remove ourselves from the process of killing and eating other creatures, we will experience less fear. That's the point. Can't do it right away? My dad couldn't. Right? My dad was called, he volunteered to go to war to, to rid the world of the tyranny of aggression. That was heroic. He did. So... There are all kinds of stories involved. The Buddha understands that. He's giving us a principle. He's saying, how come we're afraid? We're afraid because we have put into motion the, kind of the waves, you could say, the waves from killing, stealing, lust, lies, intoxicants. Those waves come back and swamp us and we're not at peace. So when it comes time to die, it's, really scary because we know what we've done. We can't fool ourselves. So what do we do? We say, oh, bit by bit, I see the principle, I'm going to put fewer of those waves into motion. I'm going to kill less. Maybe one meal a week, less meat. Maybe one drop dead thought fewer this week. One Fewer this week. One fewer, you know, go to hell. Or profanity per week, per day, per thought. Bit by bit, we reduce those until we're not sending people to hell. Moms, don't send your kid to hell for not finishing their vegetables, all right? That isn't free. You can't threaten kids about falling into hell and not have it impact their consciousness and yours. Okay, so let's make Buddhism free of fear. All right? Child raising, free of fear. Okay, so they know that upon death they're going to be next to the Buddhism bodhisattvas. All right, here we go. Last one. Their intent and inclinations in all worlds are unequaled how much surpassed. Therefore, they have no fear of the virtue of the great assembly. Here's the Buddha's cure for stage fright. Which is what? What's your intent? What are you speaking for? What's your purpose before you stand up and speak? If you can really be clear on your purpose and do that as you speak, then it levels out the audience and the speaker. Da zhong wei de wei, fear of the assembly's their virtue, their goodness, their quality is so much higher than mine, how do I dare open my mouth? It's terrifying. Right? That's unequal. Instead, you go, no, 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 these are, I'm saying something that I believe in. I really think that what I'm saying is true. So there's goodness and value in my saying it to these fine folks. That's level. That's equal. My intention is to put my heart behind my words. This is a goodness. This is a mitzvot, they say, in the Jewish tradition. This is a goodness. This is a good deed, a worthwhile action, sanctioned, good. And if you really think that way, it's going to be a good talk. Your talk is worth listening to. Why? Your heart's behind it. Where's the fear? So, what if you're a salesperson? You're making a sales pitch for a product you don't believe in. You better rehearse before you go down, because there's every chance that you'll be afraid. Right? I don't... This is a piece of crap, you know? (laughs) I'm trying to sell it to you. Why do I know it's true? It's because I designed the bugs in it before it was shrink-wrapped. I told that story... um, at the International Solid State Circuits Conference in San Francisco in 2001, when I was there on the panel of human values in the high-tech world with my friend, Tom Mahon. and we put the microphone in, this is an interesting story, right? The ISC, International Solid State Circuits, ISSCC, meets every year. It's a, a, an engineer's conference. They have 100 panels in five days just packed solid, uh, and you go to find out what the changes are in the actual materials that are going into the chips, that are going into the transistors. If you can innovate here, you will make a lot of money. You will change the direction of high tech. So of all these panels, there was one that year that was, you could say... um, Arts and letters, that was you know humanistic, and that was our panel: human values in the high tech world, not simply the mechanics of IT, but the mind behind IT. We, it was an idea. It was sold. The panel was sold by um, the uh, editor of the of the uh, uh, San Jose Mercury because he was a friend of the originator of the idea, Tom Mahon. and. So we thought, you know, there's a thousand attendees in this conference. We might get ten because we were put the last panel on the last day. And you know, after five days of slugging it out over silicon versus molybdenum chloride, everybody can't wait to get back on the plane and get home to Phoenix, you know, and get home to Portland and get home to New York. Nobody's going to hang around. So we showed up, kind of dragging our tails. Well, we'll do it, it's an exercise. And there were 300 people in the room who stayed, who delayed their departure so they could go to this panel and talk about what was wrong with the industry. How fascinating to have this guy stand up, and we put the microphone in the middle of the. the we, the five of us on the panel: an educator, a monk, uh, a columnist, a writer, Tom Mayan. Um, and a publicist and uh, who else an engineer and the writer the uh, editor so we all set our piece and then we said okay who would like to t- talk about some of your issues with the current state of high tech um, not no you don't have to name names but does anybody have a problem with the current process and the speed of innovation and anything that you'd like to say well well People, you could hear the chairs slam back, standing up, hitting for the microphone. We had 30 people standing in line waiting to tell their story. And I'll never forget this one guy who said, My God, he said, look, he said, I am a product of the finest educational system the world has ever seen. This is the, the, edu- the kind of education. You, he said, I have the best education anybody has ever had. He said, I graduated from Caltech and got my doctorate at MIT. He said, I was given a $25,000 bonus and a BMW to sign with the company who I won't name, but they're here in this valley and there's a dozen of you in the room that are my colleagues. He said, you know what's wrong with with the system? He says, the problem with the system is we create products that are determined by marketing. And how does marketing determine what products will sell? Greed. He said, therefore, I sell my skills for greed. He said, I, I can't make what I want. I make only what sells. How do you know what sells? Whatever people will buy. And so he said, I, there's something called time to market, and it's getting smaller and smaller from the time you sell a concept to the time it gets designed, the time it gets, you know, marketed, then it gets engineered, then it gets fact checked, then it gets, you know, we compile it. And he said, If it's not ready, by the time the product cycle is up, we shrink wrap it and sell it anyway. I sell products that I know are defective, he said. I have to buy my own products in order to use them. And he said, they bomb because I built it and it was sold before it was ready. He said, I take that piece of crap and I throw it in the closet. I got a closet full of defective products that I've designed. He said, we are, that's, Bankrupt, he said. I hate it. He said, and everybody stands up and <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's that. There's a flaw there. There's a flaw. And so this other engineer stands up and he says, Yeah, and he says, Well, I come from a uh, uh, university in Ottawa, Canada. Yeah, yeah, I do. He says, and Yeah, and he says, Hey, he says, yeah, I got, I want to show you something here. Yeah, hey, he says, See this it's cast iron link, it's a link. It's right here. See, it's broken, broken, cast iron link. It's basically strong, but uh, painted. He said, every one of our engineering graduates from the university, when they get their diploma, they get one of these links. was going, so, yeah, what's the story? He said, well, you have to understand. He said there was a bridge, Waterloo Bridge. Uh, it was designed... With a flaw in it, by an engineer, the bridge collapsed and a dozen people died, fell into the river with their cars. They died. We give each of our engineering graduates one of these links to remind them that people's lives depend on their skill and their knowledge. Sat back down. Really, really, really worthwhile panel. It was the most popular panel. And uh, we were invited back the next year and then couldn't fit it in and it got scrubbed. People forgot in the 12 months afterwards and we didn't have the the lobbying. So, anyway, intent and inclination. Bodhisattvas have no stage fright because why? They put their hearts into what they say. If they... Don't put their hearts in it, they become just somebody flocking another, flacking another product. Right? Somebody just selling something. Your heart's not in it because you know it's flawed to begin with. You'll be afraid. Unless you're just brassy. You know, you've got a lot of hard bark on you, so you can sell anything. So, and that's when you compromise. You compromise your soul that way. So, bodhisattvas get rid of stage fright because they put their heart in it, and they believe it's worthwhile. If you believe it's worthwhile, it's worth listening to, no matter who is listening. Stage fright goes away because your heart and your head and your mouth are all in service to the idea you're sharing. In theory, says the Buddha, stage fright goes away because you have leveled the audience and the speaker. Okay, that makes sense. Is that useful, maybe, for your next public speech? I hope so. Um, Anyway, there we go. Let's all turn back, please, to page 89. And we have been talking about, they attach, uh, as they enter the first ground, they immediately transcend the fivefold fears, no livelihood, death, a bad reputation, the evil destinies, and the assembly's awesome virtue. Ibu Tanjawo Yu Yuen Li Bu They attach neither to the Self nor what pertains to the Self. These disciples of the Buddha leave all fears far behind. Ibu Tanja They attach neither to the self nor to what pertains to the self. These disciples of the Buddha leave all fears far behind. So um, when we do the verses, we're reprising, we're reviewing um, what was in the, the prose. And in this case, the second verse is the, Clue is the key to the unlocking, to transforming the fivefold fears. And it has to do with the self. And if I if I could say in a sentence what I would like people to contemplate when fear rises, and it will rise in so many faces, so many ways, that the Buddhist description of what's going on is the self is under pressure. That thing that we hold so dear as being different, special, unique, me and mine, that's what's at risk. If we can get a little bit of air in there, a little bit of space around that notion that I am so distinct, we can, through analysis, through actually looking at my real situation right now, using those tools, who is in there, then the fear isn't as scary. We realize, you know, I don't have to be afraid because there's not as much to lose as I thought. And at the same time, that has to be balanced with common sense. So bodhisattvas don't become daredevils once they let go of the self or they're not out there testing well, if you know if, if the self is not real, I shouldn't be afraid as I chop my finger off, right? Wrong. Right. You didn't hear that here, right? This is the bodhisattva, bit by bit. Let's air, let's some some uh, space around those cherished notions of me and mine being different. Okay, let's uh, transfer merit around that and contemplate. This week, some of the things that, that frighten us and maybe lose some of that fear, gain some courage when the, the self doesn't have such a strong hold on our every waking moment. easy to say hard to do just today out in traffic boy I tasted what I had to lose <laughs> Whew. how can we take that as normal I'm always thinking suppose I could I, I become a really clever inventor when I'm out there with you know facing death at 70 miles an hour um, I think suppose Everybody... Suppose everybody who's going where I'm going could um, link their cars onto a, a moving belt that would carry me, you know, two feet away from the other car who's heading in the same direction I am instead of having to keep, like, six car lengths, you know, to be safe. And... I could just press in, you know, drop me off in Santa Cruz, and I go pull off. And I'm in Santa Cruz, and then hook on to the local instead of the, you know, the, the communal, or the long distance belt. Golly, Mr. Wizard, why doesn't somebody invent that? And I know the answer. It's because there's lots of money to be made in private cars. Okay, time to transfer merit. Fearlessly. Bring our newscasters here. He prefers to sit in full lotus. (laughs) Now I don't have so much to tell you, except to remind you, Hal, that Han Wednesday. What what's happened on Wednesday? Anybody know? Oh come on, St. Patrick's Day. Thank you so much, yeah. So make sure that you wear green. And uh, don't anybody come and try my hat because it, I'm very attached to it. So put on some green and welcome St. Patrick's soul who chased all the snakes out of Ireland. Somehow St. Patrick didn't like snakes, you know, and they didn't like him. So it worked out well. Um, and if you can substitute a cup of tea for a pint of Guinness, you're a better Buddhist than I am. Thank you so much, Wednesday. <laughs> Alright, that's a bit of news. The other news is our local newscaster. Mmm, yeah. Mm. Hi. 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 Thanks for waking up to do the news. It's alright. Mm. Mm. You all should know that mm, tonight you gotta turn your clocks back. Because mm. tomorrow's daylight savings and Forward, forward, forward. Yeah, I was trying to get an extra hour of sleep, but, you know, you lose one.
2: <laughs>
1: ah, you're all smarter than I am. And all right. But uh, mm, turn your clocks forward and spring ahead, you know. I, I, I used to spring. I'm, in my old age, I don't spring as much. I kind of like... Mm, I, I, I sleep more than I spring. But I, mm, it's all right. Okay, turn your clocks forward. Mm. Also... Uh, They want me to. Would you? All right. They want me to announce that. um, There. It's upside down. Oh, all right. There you go. There you go. Can you all read that? No. I'll read it for you. Mm -hmm. Venerable Master Hua, Memorial Lecture. That guy up there is Confucius. down below, I don't know who that is. but That's either the feminist or the Confucian. I'm not sure which. but It's a search for dignity, and lions are pretty dignified when we're awake. <clears throat> April 1st, 7 to 9, Graduate Theological Campus. Professor Michael Nylon, it's a woman, talking about feminist Confucian search for dignity. Roger Ames, Henry Rosemont, he's good. They're going to respond. I'll see you there. You'll see me in the front row, save me a chair, put a pillow on it, because I'll be sleeping in the first five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, see you there. Thank you, thank you. So that's the news brought to you by our sleeping ye. Um, Professor Michael Nylon is, in fact, quite a wonderful Confucian scholar, Trained at Princeton and other universities, and uh, is teaching at uh, at Cal for quite a while. And um, she's writing, um, talking about uh, issues of feminism and uh, in Confucian thinking. She actually got her doctorate at Princeton and has been teaching at Cal for some time. She did advanced study at Cambridge and is a published author on issues of Confucian studies. So that's coming up. The date, again, is April 1st. So put that in your calendar. First. April 1st. Hmm? Oh, 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Correct. 7 p.m. That's People know if you go on the GTU campus, you go up to... Pacific School of Religion, the PSR, and it's, you go up to that star intersection, you know, you go up, it's Ridge Road, and you go up, and there's this five different directions, and you turn wishbone left, and there's the chapel. It's the the Pacific School of Religion Chapel, and if you don't have a ride, we could, let us know, we could probably run you up the hill. Graduate Theological Union, April 1st, 7 p.m., Professor Michael Nylon. The respondents are Henry Rosemont and Roger Ames, who are well-known Confucian scholars, really good speakers, editors, publishers, fine men. All right, there's that. Uh, Let's see here. Um, Ken, that's pretty much the story. And that was the 17th. Okay, DRBY, Dharma Realm Buddhist Young Adults, will be um, having their one day this year one-day conference here at the Berkeley Monastery on April 17th. Poster to be uh, to be arranged. And is it on the web yet? Yes, it is. DRBY.net. DRBY.net will give you all the info. Um, those conferences are getting better and better and better. We've been doing it now for, I think, gee, many years. Twelve. Twelfth year, yeah. So uh, it's a chance to to go deeper in, uh, into the Dharma and do it with peers, do it with friends. Um, so drby.net, Dharma Realm Young Adults. And yes, if you're over 35, you can come, but everybody will stare at you. You'll be really nervous. But you're welcome. So, you want to be uncomfortable? Come on. It's okay. No. Seriously. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful conference and uh, it's done entirely by Dharma realm Buddhist young adults themselves. I get invited every now and then but I'm increasingly feeling older and older. All right. Uh, another event is the Guanyin Bodhisattva recitation session coming up at City of Ten Thousand Buddhas March 27th Saturday March 27th is the the first evening when we purify the boundaries at City of Ten Thousand Buddhas for Guanyin Bodhisattva's name reciting and I'm going to uh, innovate a little bit this year. That's pitched too high. I want to um, bring Guanyin Bodhisattva recitation to the West. And one way is to make it Guanyin Bodhisattva. Namo Guan Shir Yin Bodhisattva. That's too low. Mm. G is too high and C is too low. Yeah. Tried that Namo Guan Shiyin Bodhisattva, and then Guan Yin Bodhisattva is the when you switch to the short. like this. this mm-hmm. Namo Guan Shiyin Bodhisattva Nam.
0: One <speaking> in Bodhisattva one in one in one
1: about Guan yin which is Chinese, and Bodhisattva, which is Sanskrit. I mean in fact it's purely English because English is all made up of other languages, right? <laughs> it's true. There's a whole bunch of Latin, a whole bunch of German, a whole bunch of French, there's even Chinese. Katsup, did you know is Cantonese? Yeah? <laughs> This is a little bit higher. Anybody's got a high voice? Let's let's see how it sounds.
0: I uh, said,
1: Investigate something else. I was thinking today, um, whenever it, it occurred to me that Shifu, Master Shenhua, used to exhort people all the time to do more good. When we talk about cultivation, and people think, we've been saying, you know, what is the best Dharma door for me? What is the best way to practice? and uh, last week with Master Da'an here, the answer was recite the Buddha's name. That was the, the answer, right? And people think about cultivation often as a set of practices, that you've got to go do this. You have to go recite, you have to go meditate, you have to go bow. And certainly those are real practices, but Shurfu used to tell us to cultivate goodness all the time. He would go right to the root and he would say "dor zuo shang gong de,你们的德行不够,不要看我,我是没有德行的人,你们要讀做上公的, 增長你們的德行." he would say, he would say, "all of you need to do more good. he said, i am someone who has no good deeds." I have really a low... My bank account of goodness is really low, he would say. He'd say, I have to always... I always tell myself to do more good deeds. And he would talk like that. And you think, well, gee, sure, if you don't have any storehouse of goodness, you know, I'm hopeless. Maybe he was saying that just to exhort us, but he was always exhorting people to do more good. And he made me think, you know, what does Shifu mean? What does he mean when he says that? Um, in I know in the Jewish tradition that there are a set of mitzvot, the good deeds are actually numbered. And somebody who is a mensch, somebody who's really doing it correctly does all of them, you know, doesn't fear doing good. Only fears that they won't do enough good. You have to do good deeds. And so, I was thinking that I, I really have fallen down in following shirfu and exhorting people to do more good deeds, and I need to do that. I need to exhort myself, do more good deeds. He, no matter how much good you do, it was never enough, according to Master Shrinuwa. And I was thinking, um, besides just exhorting, how about helping? So I thought I want to direct everybody's attention. I know you all surf online. I know you all spend a lot of time with your hand on that mouse or on that trackpad. Direct your browser to helpothers.org. Helpothers.org. H-E-L-P-O-T-H-E-R-S.org. Who is that? That's Nipun and Charity Focus. That's our Charity Focus friends who have put a website together that collects inspiring stories. Helpothers.org is a repository for good deeds. More de, wholesome deeds, good deeds, great stories. Here's one. When you go, so I'm going to exhort you all to do more good deeds, and myself as well, and you too need to do more good deeds. I'll try. Every time I'm awake, I'll try to do more good, but that's not very often. Okay, so you have to do more good deeds. And at the same time, I'm going to tell you where to go to get inspired. Because this is one of those places, helpothers.org. There's a daughter, true story, told by a friend. A daughter who goes to an expensive private school. Uh, She's probably about seventh grade. Expensive private school. She has a friend, a new friend, who is also at that expensive private school but is there on a complete full scholarship. Otherwise, the friend wouldn't go. Couldn't afford it. Why? Because the friend is recently immigrated from China. And the mom works really hard, doesn't have much money, and dad is an alcoholic. So the money that comes in, the mom has to hide it because dad will drink it all away. The little girl is on full scholarship. That's the only way she can get to this fancy boarding school. But the girl who is the friend has a really, really good big heart. And so she has decided to become a friend of the Chinese immigrant girl whose dad's the alcoholic and whose mom is always angry because she's exhausted from working so hard. She just has no energy to be nice. And so this poor girl is, has a very hard life. And yet the girl who's the, the story, the focus of the story, the one whose parents give her everything and who's there, you know, uh, paying her way, likes her new Chinese classmate and wants to be her friend okay so the uh, the Chinese girl's mom works really hard but they can barely make ends meet the girl the Chinese girl is very bright she's gifted in music and so she's very she gets really good grades she works really hard she's a musician but she only has money for lunch her uniform and music lessons Otherwise, she has no money at all. So the daughter, of the wealthy daughter, became friends with the girl and she would talk to her at lunch secretly, write her notes and things and sit with her. Why did she have to do it secretly? Because if her rich friends saw that she was talking to the scholarship girl, they would make fun of her. Okay, well, so the rich daughter birthday, came up. And what did she do? She invited her new friend to come to her birthday party. And the new friend, the Chinese girl, said, can't come. Thank you. Well, the rich daughter, was very persistent, said, yeah, you should come. I want you to come. Why won't you come to my birthday party? Well, eventually, the talented musical scholarship girl said, because I don't have any nice clothes that I could wear. I can't come to your party in my school uniform. So the wealthy daughter said, mm, Well, I want you to come to my birthday party. We've got to get you there. So the Chinese girl said, Well, actually, um, I did get a handed down blouse that I wore for my piano recital. Could you loan me a skirt, she said. So the daughter said, yes, of course. I'd be so thrilled. I want you to come to my birthday party. So she went home to ask her mother whether she could loan her new friend the skirt. Well, the mother said, no, absolutely not. The daughter was really upset. And she never, ever lost her temper at her parents. But that day she said, If I could, I would give my new friend all my clothes. Why won't you let me loan her a skirt? And so the mother was shocked by her daughter's outburst. And she said, Well, tell me what's wrong. So the daughter said, My new friend is on a scholarship. She doesn't have any other clothes. She can't come to my party. She'll be embarrassed if she doesn't have something nice to wear. The mother said, oh, that's different. Why didn't you tell me? Let's give her this outfit to wear. And you think of a way to do it so she won't be embarrassed. So the mother was on the side of the daughter and said to herself, my daughter's got a kind heart, she said. So the mother immediately changed her mind. She said yes. She encouraged her daughter not to talk to her secretly, but to talk to her right up front. Don't be scared of the friends laughing at her for making friends with the new girl. That's the proper thing to do, but do it up front. So the girl came to the party, and now they're best friends, and they hang out together all the time. And that's the story. That came from helpothers.org. True story. And I thought, how interesting, which one of the five-fold fears is represented there? Fear of loss of reputation. Exactly. And the mother said, no, you have to do it up front. Don't be afraid. And the self is not that important. And so they became best friends, and that's a goodness. So Master Hua would always say, de, do more good deeds. All right. So I say to you, do more good deeds. You too. All right. I'll eat fewer mm, pizza. Just okay. Yeah. He's actually a vegetarian lion, so he was going to say gazelles, right? I never. I'm too old. I can't chase gazelles anyway. So, Pizzas don't run that fast, you know, so I can eat a lot of those. Yeah. Vegetarian pizzas, of course. Okay, and don't forget St. Patrick's Day. See you next week.
0: to the Venerable Master.